From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. And welcome to episode 73 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you feeling today? I'm recovering, so uh, today's a good day. They're not, they're not all great days, but I'm doing, I'm doing much better than I thought I'd be doing. So how are you, Michael? I'm doing well. I, I'm glad that you are feeling better, and um, that you are you are back with us. Yes. So every, I know everybody was very worried about you. I know, and I apologize that we we had to miss last week's episode. It's it is a shame too because we had it already, with the exception of an intro. Uh, <laughs> but it just it, it wasn't able to come together. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I know you all understand, and the good news is we have. So many, so many episodes out there that have run two hours or longer that I'm sure you you haven't made it all the way through mm-hmm. yet, and we're saving for a good time. So hopefully you're able to go back in our archives and uh, find a find a gem to listen to to fill in that well, gap of last week. We'll have to have a show just like ready that it's our filler show. Yeah, if one of us is <laughs> sick, we have a generic intro and outro, and we just load her up. Yes, it's, it, we'll call it our apocalypse show. So, be... Yeah, and uh, I was neglectful. I did not mention that Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. So visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. So, well, you know, Craig, Mickey Mania, you know, as we talked about in our last episode, and we will be continuing um, that episode later on. We will have part two to you. We're just sort of um, re- reshuffling our schedule just a bit. And you'll find out why, because this 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 one had a time date on it. Yeah. So, um, but, but, you know, boy, oh boy. Everywhere you go, if if it if it's Mickey Mouse, it has that 90th anniversary uh, stamp on it. Oh yeah, logo on it. Oh my gosh, I was looking everywhere for those Mickey Mouse Oreo birthday cookies. I mean, everywhere in our town, uh, you know, everybody from every state and island around here that listens to us were all telling me about these Oreo cookies and posting photos and offering to buy them for me and all that. And um, so finally, I, I just thought, okay, one last ditch effort. So I did grocery shopping today and I asked someone who was, um, you know, do you know, people order their groceries online and then mm-hmm. they pick them up. So somebody was filling those orders and I said do you have these Oreo cookies and all that and she talked to someone on her you know mystery microphone and they had a stash of them in the back that were not out on the shelves and I thought yeah and and they were they were definitely aware of how much these things are going for on uh, on online they're going for like $16 seriously uh, yep yep so um, they seem to be very aware of that. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Like the the bizarre part of them is that mm-hmm. uh, you know they were supposed to debut I think just this past week, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and 
They've been out in all of our stores, Target, Publix, Walmart, for well over a week now. Oh, they're not here. Oh, yeah, no, they just, they were in abundance at every store. And, you know, we we got our one pack, but I didn't realize I should stock up on more, but... I got got four. (laughs) (laughs) My problem, Oreos are my vice, so Mm. I buy basically every special flavor that comes out so at any given time i have i probably have six packs of oreos like i oh still have some that are over a year expired but i have them in my freezer because if you put the oreos in the freezer they don't expire as quickly oh really oh yeah. i'm gonna do I, that i'm but... telling you a hundred percent i know it says that they're they're bad and you shouldn't eat them but i've pulled out year old oreos out of the freezer let them like thaw in the fridge or whatever and they taste just like they they were opened hmm. so well well these for folks who don't know they're in a very festive pack and they come with three uh little designs on them. And first of all, I don't know who's doing quality control at Oreo. <laughs> but I mean, the cookies were a part. One of them it was ups- it was the the design part was actually on the cream. And the flat part was exposed. I mean, I don't know what's going on over there. I think they have too many flavors. But they um they they have three designs on them. One is Mickey in a party hat with and he's smiling and, and and these are pretty well detailed with little stars and things floating around and then there's the um i think it's a party horn uh or yeah i think it's a horn and then yeah. there's little mickey icons and all of that and festive things and then there's 90 and it and then with little mickey icons all floating around and all that so and it's birthday cake flavor i have only ha- i've never had birthday cake flavor so just like I unboxed that D23 party box a while back, I'm going to have my first bite of, of the cookie right here with all of you. So and I'm going to tell you what I think. Yeah. And I'll pretend that I am having my first bite, even though I've already probably, I think I've maybe had like 10 of them. <laughs> They're very sweet. <laughs> you have to like sweetness. They're actually pretty good. I'm not in for all the other flavors like cinnamon swirl and or mm-hmm. cinnab- cinnabon and caramel. I like the milk chocolate ones, but um, these are good. I like these. Yeah. So anyway, so it's good luck finding them, gang. If you can find them, oh, they have Pepperidge Farm Mickey Mouse Goldfish too. So, oh yeah, no, I've been I've been buying those at Target every single time mm-hmm. I go. So yeah, I've, they're on sale out here right now. Yeah, they're good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to give a shout out to listener Brandon. He surprised me. Um, he sent me three Mickey Mouse Funko Pop figures. Um, he sent me Steamboat Willie, Brave Little Taylor, and Sorcerer Apprentice Mickey. And Excellent. I only had one other Funko Pop figure that, again, another friend gave me. Uh, it's Stitch. So these, I usually don't like Funko Pop figures. These are really cute. Yeah, I, I like a lot of the the ones that they've been doing for uh, Mickey mm-hmm. for the '90s. So it's they're just an addiction. You have to pick and choose what, which ones you want to collect. And so mm-hmm. I, I I'm trying to quit Funko right now. Long story short. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> so. oh my! Is there like a, a a group that you meet? You know, like if you go on a cruise, it's to say friends of you know Funko and. 
you have your meetings. My my <laughs> final straw was actually with this haunted mansion doom buggy one uh, that just released this uh, last weekend, and obviously I was with me being in my state of recovery. I wasn't going to go out and wait in an hour, two hour long line uh, to to get it. So I did want to go to Disney Springs anyways because part of what was helping my stress relief and helping me feel better was uh, was building Legos. So I wanted to go to the Lego store anyways. And so I was like, you know what? I'll stop. I'll stop by and see if they still have the Funko. And I must have missed it by maybe 10 minutes. Like they mm-hmm. had just they had just started like wiping down the shelves and stuff and pulling everything away. And I could still see people leaving the store with bags of of the doom buggy one and i was like you know what that's it's the last time because i can't every single time disney releases a new funko now at the parks it gets harder and harder to get them and i'm just i'm done i'm not i'm not playing with it anymore yeah and and it it drives me nuts that people buy those like you know, I'll buy items. There's like my popcorn buckets. I buy those because I enjoy them and I like looking at them. And they're all memories of an event or being with friends or, you know, something like that. So that's why I I have this craze for popcorn buckets. But um, but then there's some people that buy them just to sell them on eBay. And it just ticks me off because it means somebody who's at that event or at the park or for whom this means something can't get it and you know i I don't know it it really bothers me and i wish disney would crack down on it yep you know and they just they don't care because ultimately as long as they sell it that's their end game uh Mm -hmm. they want to they want to make the money and it doesn't matter if it's someone selling it on a third party app or or selling it on a different marketplace or if they're just selling it to people who are going to keep it in and treasure it but it's it, it really is an issue so but i'm i'm done with it so it doesn't yeah. matter to me i'm moving on to other collections i'll keep collecting my tiki <laughs> yeah. mugs they don't hurt anyone did you see the new um aloha tiki shirt mug i don't think so it's a disney one i, I saw it on I, I i don't know where i saw it but it was on some disney site and it's a it's a disney tiki mug shirt <laughs> Oh, I no, want yes, one. I have seen that. I want yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nice. I've seen it. I, I thought about it, but um, I, I ultimately didn't get it. But it is cool. No, absolutely. I thought of you immediately yeah. when I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, we, oh, one of the, we were talking about episodes and reshuffling and all that. One of the things that we are planning we actually do plan ahead, is folks, we got such good receptions from from all of you to our to my my very lengthy trip report when I was uh, incredibly jet lagged uh, back in October when I came back from the Dreams Unlimited Travel Adventures by Disney trip to Tokyo. Uh, well, it was to the three Asian parks, you know, Hong Kong, um, you know, Shanghai, and then we also did an add on for for Tokyo Disneyland, and uh, and then th- that did gangbusters in you know our numbers, and then when we had uh, a meal on to talk about you know the D twenty three Expo in Tokyo and then sort of what was going on there, folks really enjoyed hearing about what was going on in Tokyo. So we thought you know 
our, our Walt Disney World show and our Disneyland show really do a great job covering what's going on in the parks in Halloween. But there's a lot of things going on in the international parks for Halloween also. And, and they do a twist on it because, you know, Halloween's a, a Western holiday. So it's interesting. I found it very interesting to see how the Asian parks, uh, you know, sort of interpreted Halloween and I was amazed by what they did. And so we decided we're going to have correspondence on from those parks to tell us what uh, what's going on in in Tokyo Disneyland in in Hong Kong Disneyland in Shanghai Disneyland. And uh, but what we need is we need a Disneyland Paris correspondent to share with us what is going on in Halloween over there in that resort. So, Craig, do you want to tell our listeners if if they're Disneyland Paris and how they can um, become a correspondent for yeah. Connecting with Walt for this? Yeah, well, if you make it to the end of the episodes, then you always hear all <laughs> of our uh, our plugs for social media. And uh, there's, there's lots of ways that you can get in touch with us. And, of course, we'll go over that again at the end of this episode. But uh, let's go ahead and say, for just all intensive purposes, uh, just make sure you tweet at us, uh, connecting Walt, connecting Walt on Twitter, if you're interested. And then it doesn't hurt to also include our our personal uh, Twitter handles in there as well, too, just so we we know we're going to see it for sure and. Uh, that's I, I'm Teleclaster and Michael, you are is that one M Bowling one two one yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the best way, especially if you want to do it on Twitter. And then ultimately, if you, we haven't heard from us after a, a day or two, and you reached out about it, go ahead and email either Michael at wdwinfo.com or Craig at wdwinfo.com and we'll we'll see it in our email mm-hmm. or you can just yeah. go ahead and do it to both of us yeah um, that's probably a good idea both <laughs> of us so then craig can can craig and i'll evaluate you exactly we are we already do have our correspondence lined up for the other parks for tokyo shanghai and hong kong so it's disneyland paris that we need the correspondent so Anyway, yeah, thank you. I think that'll be a fun, fun episode because I I loved Halloween at Hong Kong and Tokyo and um, Shanghai didn't do as much last year, but I uh, but I understand they are this year. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to hear what they do. I'm definitely looking forward um, to it. Yeah, and we have we we we've, we've been teasing this. Uh, you know, Craig and I plan to be at Destination D, and we are going to have a connecting with Walt meetup, and and. Finally, we have a, a place, a date, a time, uh, and all that. Craig, do you want to share that with our listeners? Yeah, so uh, we, we know that everyone's probably going to be getting in at some point on Friday. So that way they can check in and, and get going with all the festivities and, you know, whether or not that includes just going to the parks or getting getting in a nice big dinner and going to bed early before you're up early on Saturday for all of the excitement of the event. But uh, we decided that since a lot of people are going to be staying around the monorail loop, uh, specifically the contemporary, since that's where the event's being held, uh, and everyone's 
if that's going to the event is going to be coming and going from the contemporary to check in at some point, we figured we'll just try to have a little bit of a mini meet up there. So uh, this is not sanctioned or anything by Disney. This is uh, more or less a situation of Michael and I are going to be there and we would like as many people that are going to be around to come out and say hi and chat with us for a little bit. So uh, we're going to pick a nice good public area. So uh, we've settled on the Outer Rim Lounge at the Contemporary. That's the the lounge on the fourth floor right across from Contempo Cafe. And right after you get up the escalators, you you can't miss it. So the, the bar's right there. So there's drinks and obviously there's food at Contempo Cafe there that's available too if you're looking for a snack or anything. But yeah, we just uh, figure we'll do it there and don't really have a, a, a length of how long it'll last. But we're planning on getting there at 2 p.m., so mm-hmm. 2 p.m. at the Outer Rim Lounge at the Contemporary on Friday the 16th? 16th of November. Mm-hmm. November, yes. Great. I forgot the yeah. November part. <laughs> or did I say October? I'm not I all there. I don't remember. <laughs> but I, I'm still, I'm st- the, the birthday cake Oreos just scent is just wafting over here. It's <laughs> fogging me up. <laughs> anyway, great. Yeah, so we hope you'll show up. Say hello, and you know, t- and, and um, it'll just be fun to get to know folks. And it's very informal, like Craig said. It's just friends getting together. So, okay, great. Well, let's jump into the show. Now, Craig and I have frequently talked about you know some of our favorite Disney animated and live action films, which is why we are always excited when Turner Classic Movies announces its seasonal treasures from the Disney Vault schedule. I think we're also always a little surprised that it comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early years of the Disney Channel, you know, films and shorts in the Disney Vault were broadcast regularly. And I, I love those years of the Disney Channel. Um, now they are broadcast primarily on Turner Classic Movie Channel. And perhaps in 2019, they'll be available from Disney's own streaming distribution service. Um, Turner Classic Movie had sponsored the great movie ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios, Walt Disney World, starting in 2014. But that contract ended in 2017. The great movie ride closed on August 13th, 2017, to be reimagined as Mickey Minnie's Runaway Railway. There was an assumption this meant that Turner, um, you know, uh, classic movies, the treasures in the Disney vault would uh, also end. But we are delighted to see that this series is continuing. Um, Now, Craig, have you heard any updates about Turner Classic Movies, Treasures in the Disney Vault, or about Disney's new streaming service lately? No, not really. So I, I, I'm assuming that whatever contract they originally signed in terms of the movie side, or in terms of the, the television side with TCM, I'm assuming that it was for for a decent chunk of years. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I don't, you know, even though some of us, including us, we're kind of speculating that it might be go away, going away once the whole great movie ride uh, dissolved. I, you know, even though we kind of were leaning towards that, I think I think it's safe at least for another couple of years. So, and you know, it, some of these might show up on the streaming service, but and I, I really want them to, but I, I think we're also thinking very hopeful with that that Disney has the respect for their past catalog. Um, 
it's it, it's partially why it's so special with Turner Classic Movies is the relationship that they did develop there and having Leonard Malton really spearhead it and and choose the films that are going to be shown and there's just a lot happening in the background with that that I feel like that worked well with the streaming service yes I I think we all want to see the classics on there but Mm -hmm. even even to this day a lot of the shorts and stuff that they have on some of the current apps uh, that Disney has released you can't even see the full length classic cartoons you see the the little short versions i believe they yeah, have, have a laugh. laugh yeah and so when we can't even get full length versions of some of these classic uh shorts that are literally short <laughs> it should be mm-hmm. very easy to release an eight minute one versus a three minute one for kids who apparently can't sift through the other five minutes of them um it it doesn't leave me with a lot of hope that they'll do a lot of the classics justice once once the streaming service is around. But we'll we'll have to wait and see on that, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are going to share some information about the October 15th, 2018 Treasures from the Disney Vault Films and Shorts. We are not going to go into heavy critiques of these films. Instead, we'll share some stories in the hope that it will increase your enjoyment and appreciation of these films. And we may also share our memories and thoughts about these films. Um, So... The Disney treasures you can look forward to viewing on October 15th. Um, well, Craig, do you want to share yeah, absolutely. those with us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, <clears throat> all of these are uh, in Eastern time, so I can't, I can't fix that for everyone else. And uh, October 15th, just for everyone's heads up, that is a Monday. So <laughs> once again, completely... Why don't, they, why don't they do these on the weekend? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's never convenient, so... But luckily, now uh, now I do have a DVR, unlike when it first started, and I had to just stay up and watch it all to enjoy it. At least now I can, I know like the four o'clock ones, the two o'clock ones, I can just hit the DVR on those and check mm-hmm. them out later. But this year, I, not this year, but this round, I don't think I'll need to do a lot of DVRing uh, because some of it is a little bit more well-known. So kicking off at 8 o'clock, they're showing uh, the Magician Mickey short from 1937. Uh, and then shortly after, it, around 8.05-ish, then they'll go into the first feature of the night, Bedknobs and Broomsticks from 1971, of course, available on Blu-ray right now. Uh, at 10.15, it's another short, The Little Whirlwind, from 1941. And then following that, at 10.20-ish, will be Flight of the Navigator, classic 80 movies from 80s movie from 1986. It's one that I grew up on. And then at 12.15, uh, another cult classic uh, that was definitely available on DVD. So it has been around, but The Black Hole from 1979. At 2 a.m., there's the short Pluto Sweater, and that's from 1949. Uh, Right after that is another feature, The Cat from Outer Space, so that's from 1978. Yeah, I had to double-check on that one, and it's definitely definitely happening. And then at 4 a.m., finishing off, it's The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, uh, 1980. So that is the entire night. Alrighty, great. 
Okay, and were you able to determine a running theme for the whole evening? I think part of it we could because it was um, it yeah it's obviously science fiction. Yeah, I, can you? Sorry. No, I, unless it's just sci-fi and fantasy yeah. for the whole evening. I, I would say kind of cult in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, especially Flight of the Navigator, the Black Hole, those, those are definitely cult classics in the Disney realm. And even Cat from Outer Space a little bit. And then you can kind of look at that the same way with Bedknobs and Broomsticks. It it never quite achieved the same fame as Mary Poppins, even though... It's so many people want to always compare it to that, and the comparisons are obvious. Uh, it, it makes sense why it's done, but it's kind of that that lesser side. So uh, it, to me, it makes it makes sense sense that these are all kind of like little cult classics, and with some random shorts thrown in that they finally remastered that they want to throw up there. All right, well, let's start our exploration of these films in the order of their airing. So settling in with anticipation and your bowl of popcorn at 8 p.m., we start off with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck in a 1937 cartoon short, Magician Mickey, which was originally released to theaters on February 6th, 1937. And Mickey puts on a magic show, but there is a heckler in the audience, Donald Duck, who tries to belittle Mickey's men his magic tricks. But Mickey finally gets the upper hand with Donald through the use of magic. Now, this cartoon sometimes deletes the scene where Goofy gets electrocuted when he sticks his finger in a live light socket. And this short is available on the Disney Treasures series Mickey Mouse in Living Color. So, Craig, have you um, seen this film before? Yeah, absolutely. I haven't I haven't watched it in quite a while, but it, it is very enjoyable. So mm-hmm. it, it's not my favorite Mickey cartoon at all, but uh, it's uh, I, I'm glad that it is getting the that it is getting the HD treatment for this. So mm-hmm. it's it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty awesome to see how beautiful it looks. Yeah, it. What I do like is that it's still the the, the interplay between Mickey and Donald. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're definitely antagonistic. Mickey has not settled into his um, sort of good boy role yet. You know that he, yeah. that we will see later on in the evening. But but um, so, so it's it's enjoyable to see the interplay between yeah. them and as I'm, they try. Mickey and Donald try to sort of um, you know one up each other. Yeah, no, it's a it's it's still a good good time period for the Mickey mm-hmm. shorts for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now the cartoon was directed by David Hand, written by Vernon Stallings, and produced by Walt Disney. Uh, Goofy, the voice actors, Goofy was of course done by Pinto Kolvig, uh, Donald Duck, Clarence Nash, and Mickey Mouse, of course, Walt Disney. The animators were Art Babbitt, Johnny Kano, Les Clark, Isidore Klein, uh, Ed Love, and Bill Roberts. Now, we'd mentioned the Have a Laugh um, series that came out a few years ago. Just to give you an idea how much is deleted from the classic shorts, this is what these are the scenes that are deleted from the Have a Laugh short release. Um, Goofy after raising the curtain, setting up the lighting for the stage, and saying on with the show. Donald blowing bubbles in his soda as a razz at Mickey. Mickey creating pink bubbles, one of which is turned into a lobster that attacks Donald. 
Uh, the entire scene with Goofy and the burnout spotlight bulb, which lights whilst he holds it in his hand and sticks his other finger in the empty socket. The entire second act of the shortest cut. After Donald first spews cards from his beak, it cuts to Donald jumping through Mickey's magic hoop, resulting in removing the following scenes. Um, Donald getting squirted by his own bottle of soda uh, when Mickey uses it against him. Donald falling in his box seat, which splashes with water. Donald grabbing Mickey's wand and inadvertently creates an ice cream cone, which blasts him in the face. Mickey shrinking Donald down and forming multiples of him before shooting him into an egg, which he then breaks open in a hat, returning Donald to full size again. Uh, Donald grabbing the wand again and breaking it, causing it to turn into a boxing cactus plant that punches him off stage. And Donald threatening Mickey with the with uh, the Donald's pistol and Mickey warning him that it's loaded. Yeah. So there's a lot that's cut out of here. A lot of that um, interplay and exchange and, and um, mischievousness and all that. Yeah, it's you know it, you're essentially you're getting the the Mickey Mouse head intro and then the title card and then it's just going straight to the <laughs> yeah. end. Now, and this short um, reportedly served as the inspiration for the Town Square Theater meet and greet for Mickey at the Magic Kingdom's Main Street USA at Walt Disney World. Hmm. Yeah, so magician Mickey. Yeah, no, it's a. Uh, going to be a great way to kick off the night so and i guess with the first film that they is right after at least it uh continues the magical theme to it so yes yes it, it magician mickey leads us to the first feature film of the evening and this is as you said a magical film for 1971 bed knobs and broomsticks and this is based upon the books the magic bed knob or how to become a witch in 10 easy lessons uh, that was written in 1943 published in 1943 and bonfires and broomsticks published in 1947 by english children's author mary norton the film, which combines live action and animation, stars Angela Lansbury and David Thomason, and of course, we all know him as Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins. This was the studio's most ambitious live action feature since the passing of Walt Disney in 1966. The animation was key to the success of this film, and comparisons between this film and Mary Poppins are understandable since it consciously attempted to emulate the success of that film. As the Sherman Brothers stated in an interview for Record World magazine, actually he, meaning Walt, bought the Mary Norton book before Mary Poppins. I remember just before everything got going on Poppins, we were having some trouble getting okays from P.L. Travers, the author of the stories, on the songs we had written. It was very exasperating. One day, Walt came to us and said, Don't worry, boys. I bought another story that deals with magic. If we can't work things out with Travers, we'll be able to use your stuff in the other picture. So I guess Walt always had a backup. <laughs> so the story for Bedknobs and Broomsticks was developed in 1964, and the Sherman brothers began writing their score for the film. During a story conference with producer Bill Walsh and writer Don DeGrotti, as the Sherman brothers were singing the song Eglantine, Walt fell asleep in his chair. So when Mary Poppins finally went into production, Bedknobs and Broomsticks was shelved due to its similarities with Mary Poppins. That makes sense. Yeah. So. 
Now, in the spring of 1966, the Sherman brothers went back to working on bed knobs and broomsticks, but the project was shelved again. Uh, also for the same reason, due to the similarities with Mary Poppins. As the Sherman Brothers' contract with the Walt Disney Studios was set to expire in 1968, they were contracted by Bill Walsh in their office to resume work on the film. Walsh, DeGrotti, and the Sherman Brothers worked on the storyline for several months. Although there was no plan to put the film into production at the time, Walsh promised the Sherman Brothers that he would call them back to the studio and finish the project, which he eventually did in November of 1969. Throughout 1970 and 1971, the Sherman Brothers reworked their musical compositions for the film. The song, The Beautiful Briny, was originally written for Mary Poppins for a scene when Mary spins a compass, sending the Banks children into several exotic locations. Now, the interesting thing is, have you seen the the most recent um, Mary Poppins Returns trailer, Craig? Yes, I absolutely have. And I really think they have put this scene back in. I completely agree with you. That was the, mm-hmm. the first thing I thought of when uh, I started reading over this it's like that they're re-exploring this so but yeah no great idea ever dies yeah no and that that compass is also from the that compass scene is from the books yeah and there are recordings of pl travers you know the famous recordings that she insisted on having with the sherman brothers and don degrati and and gang um where, where, and they talk about this scene yeah, the the whole compass scene in there. So I, I'm glad that they're bringing it back. Uh, yeah, no, I, I have reservations about the film, but I I think it's going to be fascinating to see uh, this sequence, you no, know, in the book. I in the completely film. agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Now, full-scale production of the film began in 1970. Um, Leslie Caron, Lynn Redgrave, Judy Karn, and Julie Andrews were all considered for the role of Eglantine Price, an amateur witch in wartime England. Andrews was initially offered the part, but hesitated. Walsh later um, contacted Angela Lansbury, who signed on to the role on October 31st, 1969. That date just seems appropriate for this film. Uh, Shortly after, Andrews contacted Walsh again, only to learn that Lansbury had been cast. Although Peter Ustinov was considered, um, Ron Moody was originally cast as Emilius Brown. But he refused to star in the film unless he received top billing, which the studio would not agree to. So he was replaced by David Tomlinson, strengthening the film's um, connection to Mary Poppins. Uh, Other Mary Poppins actors and crew also participated in the film, including supporting actor Reginald Owen, um, director Robert Stevenson, art director Peter Ellenshaw, uh, music director Erin Costell, along with the Sherman Brothers. So let's take a look at the film's plot. During the Blitz of World War II, Charlie, Carrie, and Paul are evacuated from London to Pepperidge Eye, where they are placed in the reluctant care of Miss Eglantine Price, who agrees to the arrangement temporarily. The three children attempt to run back to London, but after 
observing Miss Price attempting to fly on a broomstick, they change their minds. Miss Price reveals she is learning witchcraft through a correspondence school with the hopes of using her spells in a British war effort and offers the children a transportation spell in exchange for their silence. She casts the spell on a bed knob and explains that only Paul, who's the youngest, can work the spell. Later, Miss Price receives a letter from her school announcing its closure, which prevents her from learning the final spell, which was the one Eglantine had hoped to use for the war effort. So she convinces Paul to use the enchanted bed to return the group to London and locate Professor Emilius Brown. They discover Brown is actually a charismatic and somewhat bumbling showman who created the course from an old book and is surprised to learn the spells actually work for Miss Price. He gives the book to Miss Price, who is very unhappy when she discovers the final spell, Substitutiary Locomotion, is missing. The group travels to Portobello Road to locate the rest of the book. They are approached by Swineburne, who takes them to the bookman, who possesses the remainder of the book. They exchange their pieces, but learn only the spell was inscribed on a medallion, the Star of Astaroth, that belonged to a sorcerer of the same name. The bookman reveals the medallion may have been taken by a pack of wild animals given anthropomorphism by Astaroth to a remote island called Nabumbu. It was said in the 17th century a soldier claimed he saw Nabumbu. The bookman, however, does not believe the island exists as he looked in every chart for it until Paul confirms its existence through a storybook that came into his possession. The group fly on the bed and land in the island of Nabumbu's lagoon. There, the bed goes underwater, where Mr. Brown and Miss Price enter a dance contest and win first prize. Just then, the bed is fished out of the sea by a bear, who tells the five there is no peopling allowed. They are brought before King Leonidas, who rules the island. He is wearing the Star of Astaroth, then invites Mr. Brown to act as a referee in a soccer game. The chaotic match ends in Leonidas's self-proclaimed victory, but Mr. Brown cleverly swaps the medallion with his referee whistle as he leaves. Upon examining the star, Miss Price finds the missing spell for substitutionary locomotion. When he discovers the theft, Leonidas pursues the travelers, but Miss Price transforms them into a white rabbit, and the five escape. Back home, Miss Price prepares to try out the spell, but the star has vanished back into the fantasy world of Nabumbu. Paul reveals the spell was actually in his storybook the whole time. Miss Price attempts the spell on Mr. Brown's shoes. Whilst the spell works and imbues the shoes with life, she finds she inadvertently brought other items throughout the house to life as well and has difficulty controlling them. Mrs. Hobday informs Miss Price the children can be relocated with another family, but Miss Price decides she wants them to stay. Mr. Brown, though, is leery, leery of commitment, and when the children refer to him as a father figure, he decides it's time to return to London for a very pressing engagement. A platoon of Nazi commandos land on the coast and invade Miss Price's house, imprisoning her and the children in a local museum. 
After observing more Nazis disabling phone lines, Mr. Brown comes to the rescue, inspiring Miss Price to use substitutionary locomotion to enchant the museum's exhibits into an army. Do Miss Eglantine Price and her magical army save the day and England? Do Miss Price and Professor Brown tie the knot? You'll have to stay awake through the end of the film to find out. <laughs> so, Craig, have you ever seen Bedknobs and Broomsticks? Oh, yeah, no. I watched it growing up uh, pretty regularly, and, of course, I own it on Blu-ray. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's one that uh, I will probably skip when I'm watching Treasures from the Disney Vault that night, just because I, I have seen it pretty regularly. Uh, it's... It's funny to listen to the plot, though, being described, because the, the movie is really enchanting in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. It, it, it's just, it's a very charming film overall, but but when you hear it spelled out like that, it's like, okay, now, now I'm picking up why this wasn't such a hit back then, um, but, but luckily, you know, it's... I feel like there are some generations out there who have uh, more endearing memories of it, and mm-hmm. I'm definitely one of them because I did grow up on it. So uh, I, I, I enjoy Bedknobs and Broomsticks quite a bit. I do too, and I recently rewatched it, and I uh, my appreciation for it, um, it really has grown, especially you know with some of the nods to... And it it very much had I don't know it, it was very much similar to the great musicals of the forties and fifties yeah in in a lot of ways so um, filming of Bedknobs and Broomsticks took place at the Walt Disney Studio in Burbank California from early March to June tenth nineteen seventy um, additional scenes were shot at location at I'm not sure how you pronounce this the Corfe Castle or Corfe Castle yeah, that's my thought in. Yeah, in Dorset, England. And the coastal scenes featuring the Nazi soldiers were also shot on location at a nearby California beach. Filming lasted 57 days, whilst the animation and special effects required five months each to complete. The armor used in the climactic special effects sequence had originally been assembled in Spain for the film El Cid and was later shipped to Burbank for the film Camelot and was then rented by the Walt Disney Studio for Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So most critics found one scene on the fi- in the film outstanding. When Miss Price and Professor Brown and the children travel to the island of Nabumbu, they land in a lagoon and become contestants in a dance competition in a beautiful briny ballroom. Then they travel to land where they meet the overbearing King Leonidas, who is a parody of Robert Newton's Long John Silver in Walt Disney's Treasure Island, and convinces you know Professor Brown, the referee of the soccer game. In these scenes, the characters are amusing, the animation fast-paced and frenzied, and the interaction between the live characters and the animated characters is exceptional. This is most likely because several of Walt's nine old men worked on the animation for the film. Uh, Ward Kimball was the director of animation, and character designs were by Ken Anderson. Yeah, the, the animated segments in this really are spectacular, to say the least. I... I really enjoy them more than anything else, but there, there's a lot of people like that. Some people watch Mary Poppins, think the entire thing is boring except for Jolly Holiday. So, mm-hmm. yeah, out. and uh, and I think the the 
animation mixed with live action is definitely superior to Mary Poppins. You can see where they definitely made great strides yeah. in the technology yeah, between those know, two films. You know, with over seven years between the two, um, it, it definitely it, it had an impact for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Bedknobs and Broomsticks had an original runtime of 141 minutes and was scheduled to premiere at the Radio City Music Hall in an epic holiday debut similar to Mary Poppins. But to accommodate the theater's elaborate 20-minute Christmas stage show, the film had to be trimmed down to two hours. 23 minutes were cut from the film. The removed scenes included a minor subplot involving Roddy McDowell's character, who feigned interest in marrying Miss Price but really had an eye on her property, so his role was reduced to one minute. And three musical sequences titled A Step in the Right Direction, With a Flare, and Nobody's Problems were cut. The Portobello Road sequence was reduced from about 10 minutes down to three. And when you see this restored Portobello Road sequence, this was a lengthy ballet-style sequence that was very common in musicals of the 1940s and 50s. You know, and you think of like Anchors Away, you know, any, any, anything mm-hmm. that starred Gene Kelly. Yes. You know, at the time, or Fred Astaire, had long, what they called the ballet sequence. Yep, yep. And Singing in the Rain has a perfect example Mm -hmm. of that, too. Exactly. And that's what the, the, and and so that's what Portobello Road was. So when you think, that's why I'm saying this was very much done in the old style musical, where there's a long story, a lot of exposition, a lot of character development. So you have to be prepared for that. But then these long musical sequences that um, tell a story. But really, when you watch this, this Portobello Road sequence, the dancing, the choreography, uh, the interaction between the various characters is really stunning. Um, It's just so beautifully done. um, Although this film had a lot of talent behind it, it was not a box office hit. The film's mild reception caused the studio to lose interest in producing musicals and large-scale productions of any kind. The film had a budget of $6.3 million, and it grossed $17.6 million in its initial release. Uh, For the 44th Academy Awards, the film received five Academy Award nominations for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Scoring, Best Original Song, and Best Visual Effects, and it won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. Uh, Angela Lansbury was nominated for a Golden Globe as Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. Now, when the studio re-released the film on April 13, 1979, it had a shorter runtime of 96 minutes, and all the songs, excluding Portobello Road and Beautiful Briny Sea, had been cut. Even the Oscar-nominated song, The Age of Not Believing, was removed. The soundtrack, though, had been released with all of the film's songs, including the ones cut from the film. And a step in the right direction caught the interest of Scott McQueen, who at the time was the senior manager of Disney's Library Restoration, and efforts were started to fully restore the film for its 25th anniversary. 
Now, most of the deleted material was found, but some segments of Portobello Road had to be reconstructed from work prints with digital recolorization to match the film quality of the main content. The edit included several newly discovered songs, including Nobody's Problems, performed by Lansbury. Uh, the number had been cut before the premiere of the film, and Lansbury had only made a demo recording singing with a solo piano because the orchestrations would have been added when the picture was scored. So when the song was cut, the orchestrations had not yet been added. Therefore, it was finally orchestrated and put together when it was placed back into the film. And I think it's one of the best uh, songs in the film. The soundtrack for some of the spoken um, tracks was unrecoverable. Therefore, um, Lansbury and McDowell redubbed their parts, while other actors made ADR dubs for those who were unavailable. Corey Burton, um, who theme park uh, fans definitely know his voice, uh, did a lot of the redubbing. Um, even though David Tomlinson was still alive when the film was being reconstructed, he was in ill health and unable to provide ADR for Amelius Brown. The restored version of the film premiered on September 27, 1996 at the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences in Beverly Hills, California, where it was attended by Lansbury, the Sherman Brothers, Ward Kimball, and special effects artist Danny Lee, and it was later broadcast on the Disney Channel on August 9, 1998. The restored film was released for home media on March 20, 2001 to commemorate its 30th anniversary. And although the film for A Step in the Right Direction has never been located, a reconstruction was used from the original music track linked up to existing production stills and is included with the home media release. Um, the current cut is a nearly complete 139-minute restoration. So I have the 30th anniversary um, DVD release, and that is the it, it's the whole 139-minute restoration. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the DVD release after that, it's one of the previous versions, and like the Portobello Road full sequence is one of the... Um, added bonus features so um anyway so craig do you have the 30th anniversary version i have the the blu-ray version that came out in 2014 and um now you have me second guessing which version it is actually in terms of the length and all that i it's definitely I don't think it's the 139 minute one. I think mm -hmm. it's I think it is the one that's right under 2 hours. So mm -hmm. I believe I still have a copy of the 30th anniversary one on uh on DVD 2 from way back mm -hmm. then, but uh those are those are back all at my my parents' house, so yeah. I don't have them, but um yeah, I'm I'm about 90% sure because I I remember watching the extended, um, uh, the, I remember watching a lot of the deleted and extended scenes and on the Blu-ray. So it, it has to be the, the under two hour version. Mm -hmm. Okay. But still yeah, it looks it, great it, on Blu-ray. 
So oh, it does. I'm sure it does. I have the DVD, but I'm, I'm sure it's beautiful on Blu-ray because it looks beautiful on the DVD. Yeah. Now, in March 2018, it was announced a stage musical adaptation of Bedknobs and Broomsticks was in the works with a book by Brian Hill, additional music and lyrics by Neil Bartram, in addition to the Sherman Brothers songs, and it was to be directed and choreographed by Rachel Rockwell. But after her passing on May 26, 2018, um, a replacement has not yet been announced. It um, is supposed to make its world premiere at the Yard at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater um, from May 30th to July 28th, 2019. But I I would think that date will be um, changed. <laughs> anyway, so it'd be interesting if they actually follow through on that. Uh, we'll see. I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so... Anyway, so at 10.15 p.m., we come back to Earth in the Mickey Mouse cartoon, The Little Whirlwind, produced by Walt Disney and released on February 14th, 1941. Whilst walking by Minnie Mouse's house one day, Mickey Mouse is enticed by the aroma of a cake Minnie is baking. Mickey offers to clean Minnie's yard for a slice of cake. Wow, that's, that's boy, he works cheap. As he works in the yard, a small tornado as tall as Mickey comes along and undoes all the work Mickey has done. Mickey manages to trap the little tornado with a sack, which he ties and punts away. The tornado retaliates with just two punches and attempts to get away, with Mickey in pursuit. As Mickey chases him with a rake, the terrified little tornado calls out for help. A huge tornado appears over the horizon, causing chaos and destruction through the farm fields and grasslands. When the twister finally sucks Mickey in, he is sent up for a spin until he ends up falling into Minnie's water fountain. After the two tornadoes leave, Minnie, unaware of the whole incident, finds her garden in a complete shambles. Does Minnie still share her cake with Mickey? Well, not in a way expected by Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like this short a lot. Um, it's it, the way they bring life to the tornadoes. It's just, it, it's classic Disney. You know, it, mm-hmm. lots of cartoons out there find a way to, to bring bring a different life to the inanimate objects. But I feel like this one just does does so in such a, a great comedic way. So I, I really do enjoy this one. Yeah, this is a good one. Yeah, and um, Mickey Mouse, of course, is portrayed by Walt Disney and Minnie Mouse by Thelma Boardman. The animators included Les Clark, Ward Kimball, Fred Moore, and Walt Kelly. Now, much of the animation of The Large Tornado is taken from the 1935 Mickey Mouse cartoon The Band Concert. And The Little Whirlwind was the debut for a newly updated Mickey Mouse design. Mickey was given ears that worked in perspective. Um, You know, before this, he had traditional unchanging circles for ears. Um, In addition to a slimmer body, larger head, hands, and feet, and he had two buck teeth. Um, the teeth only lasted for just two shorts. Um, canine caddy and uh, was the other one. So um, it, uh, by the end of World War II, th- this cosmetic change was um, done. <laughs> they were done with it. And the short can be found on the Walt Disney Treasures Mickey Mouse in Living Color Volume 2. So, And then that takes us to the next film of the evening. So, Craig, what's going to be your snack of choice during the second film of the night? Oh, I 
probably just popcorn. So at mm-hmm. that point, need to get my salt back in me. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I, I'm running low on energy, and I need that that jolt through my bloodstream. So maybe maybe I'll throw in some bunch of crunch onto my popcorn too. So it's <laughs> it's my favorite my favorite movie theater snack. Oh, oh, that's mine too, and my favorite at home snack as well. <laughs> Now, the theme of the evening shifts to science fiction and fantasy starting at 10.20 p.m. with the 1986 film Flight of the Navigator, uh, directed by um, Randall Kleiser. Or Kleiser? I'm not sure. Um, He directed Grease, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, White Fang, and theme park goers, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, and was written by Mark H. Baker, Michael Burton, and Matt McManus. And it stars Joey Kramer as David Freeman. He's a 12-year-old boy who is abducted by an alien spaceship and finds himself caught in a world that has changed around him. The film's producers initially sent the project to Walt Disney Pictures in 1984, but the studio was unable to approve it, and it was sent to Producer Sales Organization, which made a deal with Disney to distribute it in the United States. It was partially shot in um, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Norway, since it was a co-production with the Norwegian film company Viking Film. So the actors include Joey Kramer as David Freeman, Paul Mall, who actually is Paul Rubens. Uh, we know him best as Pee Wee Herman, and he was the voice of Max. Cliff DeYoung is Bill Freeman. Veronica Cartwright was Helen Freeman. Albie Whitaker is Jeff Freeman at eight years of age, and Matt Adler portrays Jeff Freeman at 16 years of age. In her feature film debut, Sarah Jessica Parker is Caroline McAdams. Howard Hessman, uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, you know him. Uh, He's Dr. Louis Faraday. So let's uh, navigate through the story. David Freeman is an average 12-year-old American boy living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1978. On the night of July 4th, his mother Helen asks him to collect his younger brother Jeff from a friend's house on the other side of the woods. Whilst walking through the woods, David falls down an embankment into a ravine and is knocked unconscious. He awakes after what seems like moments and walks home only to find that everything around him has changed because it is suddenly 1986. The police take him to a house where he is reunited with his family, now aged by eight years. So his he's, his little brother is sort of his big brother. Uh, the shock of it all causes him to pass out. Meanwhile, an extraterrestrial spaceship has crashed into some power lines. NASA agents convince the police that it is theirs, and they take it to their base, intending to study it, but they find it seamless and impenetrable. In the meantime, David is taken to the hospital for a medical examination and to discover why he hasn't aged. The doctors begin performing tests on his brain and find it containing accurate information pertinent to the ship that is at the NASA base. And alerted to this fact, their operative, Dr. Louis Faraday, requests him to be taken to their facility, the same place where the ship is kept, to unravel the truth behind this. 
Further scans reveal that David's brain contains alien data and star charts leading to the planet named Phalon, 560 light years from Earth. So the concept of time dilation due to faster than light speed travel is used to explain how David may have been in space for only 4.4 hours, whilst eight years passed on Earth. David befriends an intern named Caroline McAdams and tells her to let his parents know that the Institute plans to keep him longer than the promised 48 hours. The next morning, he hears a voice calling to him telepathically. He escapes, escapes from his room by hiding in RALF, or Ralph, who is a service robot and is taken to the hangar where the ship is stored. Once inside it, he meets its robotic pilot, an artificial intelligence calling himself Trimaxian, drone ship from Phalon, whom David nicknames Max. Referring to him as Navigator, Max accepts David's command to escape the base. The ship takes off from the NASA facility and hides on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Max informs David that his mission was to travel to the galaxy, collect biological specimens, then take them back to Phalon for analysis before returning them to the place and time from which they were taken. His sensors had discovered that humans only use 10% of their brain, and as an experiment, David's was filled with miscellaneous information, including star charts. Max then returned him to Earth, but didn't take him back to his proper time, fearing that humans were too delicate to survive time travel when trying to leave there and return home. So Max accidentally crashed the ship into the power lines, erasing all the star charts and data necessary to return home from its computer. He therefore needs the information placed in David's brain to complete his mission and return home. Max prepares to perform a scan on David's brain, during which he shows him the remaining alien specimens he has yet to return to their homes. David bonds with a Puckmoran, a small and harmless alien species, and the last of his kind since his home planet, Binpuka Minor, was destroyed by a comet. After a while, Max performs a scan, but in the process also contracts the ability to feel and express emotions, making him not only more human-like in behavior, but also more erratic, stubborn, and argumentative, like a 12-year-old boy. David and Max start bickering over their next course of action, to which Max's response is to shut down and allow the ship to fall from its orbit, taunting David to execute his title as Navigator for real. He manages to activate the manual controls and takes over. They travel the Earth trying to decide what to do next, being tracked and chased by NASA all the way. In the meantime, Caroline has contacted David's family and told them about David's escape in the ship. As a result, David, Dr. Faraday puts them under house arrest. To find the way home, David stops at a gas station payphone, calls home, and gets Jeff asking him to send a signal so that he can find their new house. He successfully signals the ship by lighting David's old bottle rockets and other fireworks. He is initially thrilled that he will soon return home, but becomes despondent upon realizing that he has lost eight years of time with his family. Upon arriving home and seeing the NASA people waiting for him, he decides that he does not belong in 1986, bids his family goodbye, and tells Max to return to his own time, regardless of the risks. 
Does Max transport David safely back to 1986, or does David decide to continue his adventure with Max for the sequel that never took flight? You'll have to stay awake to find out. So, Craig, I rewatched this because you had told me off air a couple weeks ago that this was a film you watched a lot, that you really enjoyed this film as a boy. Yes. It, it's terrible, though. Uh, I, I won't beat around the bush. If you did enjoy it when you rewatched it, I'm very happy for you. Um, but it, it's bad. It's, it, it's not great. So uh, I don't know if it was just a thing of kids who were born in the the 80s and grew up in the 90s but when we would go on our family vacations uh, we always had the the portable tv that would go in between my parents seats in the front of the car and point backwards to my sister i in the in the back and of course it had the tape player in there so that way we could we could watch movies as we were driving to wherever we were going and and I was given Flight of the Navigator as a as a present at one point in time. And so it was one of those movies that on these road trips, I know I watched it so many times over and over. So I have fond memories of it, but it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I think I enjoyed it. I thought the acting was good. You know, uh, you know. Now this is a you know a Disney family film. I thought that they did a good job of depicting what it would be like for a boy to come back and realize he's missing eight years of I, his life. I'll give you that. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. it's it, it is just it's definitely a movie of its time, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the best way to describe it. You know, it's it is very eighties in every way, shape, mm-hmm. and form, and that's not a bad thing. Um, it's some mm-hmm. of the most entertaining Disney movies are are the '80s ones that just weren't really made that well. But I I still support everyone going out and watching this, especially if they're catching it as part of this. This, this will be the movie I think of the night that if you're going to sit on Twitter and kind of go back and forth with random strangers about watching a movie, Flight of the Navigator is a fun one. Uh, where everyone can get in on the fun of the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I think so. So I, w- I was glad I rewatched it because I hadn't seen it since it first came out. Um, now, director um, Randall Kleiser recalled some experiences during filming. He said one of the crazy things that happened was we used the stunt double for the back of David's head when he was steering the ship in the wetlands. Um, he said the stunt boy was Norwegian and didn't understand English. So if I said for him to move left, they translated from English to Norwegian. But by the time the boy would move left, he would have been going right. So it took all day and it was very difficult to shoot. So, so some of the film was shot in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with local Florida actors and real news actor um, anchors. The forest where David's five adventure begins was filmed at the Villa Vizcaya Museum and Gardens in Miami, which at the time was, I guess maybe this is ironic, adjacent to the Museum of Science and Planetarium before the film before the museum relocated to the downtown area. In Iron Man 3, the villa was used as the Mandarin's lair. But inside the ship, we're in Norway. All the interiors of the spaceship were shot in a warehouse one hour outside of 
also um, Kleiser um, shared in an interview. It was during the cold months of February. Um, the reason we shot there was that the producer had had blocked funds there that could only be spent in Norway. I later heard a rumor that the blocked funds never came through. So if that's the case, we flew the crew from Florida to Norway for no reason. So, Flight of the Navigator was released at the beginning of 3D animation technology. The film was the very first 35mm feature one to use environment mapping, creating the illusion of a chrome object occupying a live-action frame, and is considered to hold up to today's standards. It was the first film to use image-based lighting and morphing. The CG shots were produced by Omnibus Graphics, one of the first computer animation companies responsible for most of the classic advertising 3D animation of the 80s. Uh, CGI was not used to depict the suspended steps leading into the ship. The effect of the door liquefying to form them was created through stop-motion animation by creating a series of metallic sculptures for every frame of the animation. They appeared to support David's weight with a simple, simple optical illusion. They were mounted on thin beams which were angled in such a way that they themselves hid the beams from the camera lens. Um, this arrangement even allowed for slight camera movement, as can be seen the first time David climbs them. Um, you notice that when he presses on the middle step, they all move slightly. Two full-scale spaceship hulls were used in most of the shots throughout the film. One with an open entrance, the other sealed, were constructed out of thin curved uh, sheets of wood over a metal framework and finished with primer and reflective paint. Um, one of the hulls underwent refurbishment, and it was used as the cool ship in Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. The other hull spent several years on display along the studio backlot tour at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Uh, the film was released a few months before the opening of Star Tours at Disneyland California, where Paul Rubens voiced another wacky robotic pilot named Rex. So the film received mostly positive reviews. Um, at a cost of $9 million, it made $18,564,613 at the box office. In May 2009, the Hollywood um, Reporter reported that Disney was planning a remake of the film. Brad Copeland was writing the script and Mandeville partners David Hoberman and Todd Lieberman would produce. In November 2012, Disney hired director Colin Trevorrow and writer-producer Derek Connolly to rewrite the script. In September 2017, Lionsgate and the Jim Henson Company announced that a reboot of Flight of the Navigator is in pre-production, with Joe Henderson from TV's Lucifer writing the script. Oh, gosh, I hope this becomes like a, a pigs in space vehicle. <laughs> that would be great. Um, <laughs> ultimately, though, I think we will see absolutely nothing. Uh, oh, I agree. Regarding this. Definitely not the, the Disney one. Uh, uh, Colin Trevorrow is essentially just blacklisted, except for having dealings with uh, dealings with Jurassic World. But, uh, you know, he, he already got the boot from from star wars so there's mm -hmm. there's no way disney's ever going to come back around and be like hey colin maybe maybe we'll give you another shot but yeah <laughs> and, i mean may, maybe one day with lionsgate and and henson so but it's 
I, I think this is one of those movies. It's best just leave it as what it is. Mm-hmm. But that's just my opinion. Yep, I agree. <laughs> anyway, but I thought it was fun. I enjoyed it. I'm excited so. to hear what other people think about it. Yeah, yeah, you have to let us know. Well, we've come to that point in the show. It is time again for the This Day in Disney History quiz. This time it is for the week of September 22nd. And we are welcoming back our guest, uh, uh, Alexander. So, Alexander, welcome back. You you really gave Craig a run for his money last week. Yes, sir. Thank you. So, so anyway, so uh, so I hope that you uh, are all revved up because here we go. This is this is the tiebreaker week here. So, um, so, so okay. Now, your home theme park is it? Uh, is it Walt Disney World? Is it Disneyland? Um, what what is your fi- and what is your favorite park? Well, uh, the. The one I've been to the most is is Disney World. Um, as far as uh, out of the Disney parks, I, I kind of like to call my Disney World um, as my uh, theme park home, mm-hmm. really. And uh, uh, out of the four parks, I've always had a deep fondness for Epcot. Oh, and what do you like about Epcot? Well, I I like the fact that half of it is futuristic, and the other half uh, brings together the different cultures from the far reaches of the earth. And I also like the fact that you see, uh, I that there are certain rides that I have like a a fear of motion, but Epcot, all of the rides, I think I'm able to ride. So that's also what I like about about it. You can ride Mission Space. <laughs> well, the, I, the green, the, the green oh, okay. version, the yeah, orange yeah. version you've never done. I've never done the orange version either because I'm worried um, I would need the air sickness bag for that one. But but I like the green one. So <laughs> My anyway. favorite attraction in Epcot actually is is Test Track. And it was actually my younger brother who convinced me to go on that because originally I kept on saying, no, uh-uh, I, I want nothing to do with that attraction. Oh, that's interesting. And even though that you don't care for motion, test track the fastest fastest attraction in the park is um is is the one you like the most. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's really more of a drop thing. Test track doesn't have really any drops. Oh, okay. So I can understand that. So what do you think of Rock and Roller Coaster? Uh no, that's, a, uh, that's a no no. Yeah, yeah, I've been on that once. That was enough for me. So, all right. Well, we're going to take a look at the week of September twenty second for our our listeners playing at home. We'll run through the rules. If you choose not to hear the multiple choice options, you will receive three points for a correct answer. If you choose to hear the multiple choice options, you will receive two points for a correct answer. If uh, if I'm asked to remove an incorrect option, you will receive one point for the correct answer. If you correctly 
answer the question after your opponent answers it incorrectly, you will receive one point. Some questions may have the opportunities to earn bonus points. You can earn one point for each bonus question correctly answered. In the event of a tie, there will be a tiebreaker question. And you may find having pencil and paper nearby helpful for the bonus question. And so remember folks at home it's it has to all come out of your head no no using any of the uh electronic research helpers to aid you in the contest okay alexander since you are our guest you can either choose to receive the first question or to pass it on to craig um i uh, again i think i'll receive it All right. That served you well last week. So let's see for September 22nd. What attraction began thrilling guests at Walt Disney World when it soft opened on September 22nd, 1999? I think I have to go with multiple choice. Okay. Said A, Asia at Disney's Animal Kingdom. B, Test Track at Epcot. C, Illuminations 2000, Reflections of Earth. Or D, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh at the Magic Kingdom. Well, I do know it was not Asia because um, that opened in like the late 2000s. I remember a documentary on it. Uh, I... World of Motion, that closed in 97, I believe, so that two years, that would that would be a reasonable span of time. I would have to, I think I have to go with uh, B is Test Track. Okay. All right. That was good thinking, but not quite. Not, not September 22nd, 1999. So, Craig, over to you. What? What soft opened on September 22nd, 1999? Was it Asia at Disney's Animal Kingdom, Illuminations 2000, Reflections of Earth, or The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh at the Magic Kingdom? I'm going to say The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Okay. That is incorrect. It's actually C, Illuminations 2000, Reflections of Earth. And it officially will debut on October 1st. Wow. I I just can't imagine in this day and age. I I know it's happened at Disneyland, I think, but never at Walt Disney World where a, a fireworks show would soft open. Yeah, I think maybe because it was so such a complicated show. Yeah. With all the pyrotechnics and projections and all that. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, Craig, for you, September 23rd. Oh, I know you. Here's one up right up in your area of expertise. ABC Television airs the final episode of which long-running soap opera on September 23rd, 2011? Um, hmm. I will do multiple choice. Okay, is it A, All My Children, B, One Life to Live, C, Port Charles, or D, The Edge of Night? I am going to go ahead and guess. Actually, I don't need to guess. Uh, I believe we talked about it 
on the last time we did your 60 Years of Disneyland segment. And I think it's All My Children. You are correct. It is All My Children. That that show ran from January 5th, 1970 to September 23rd, 2011. I was wondering if you'd remember they, that. That was the one that had the cafe that you and Carol ate, uh, right? Right. Soap okay. opera. Yeah. Pistro, yeah. whatever it was called. Yeah. yeah. So, and as this was a very, I, I I kept put this in here for Carol because this was a very sad day in our house because this was her favorite soap opera. I remember so, you saying that. Yes. Okay. All right, Alexander, over to you for September twenty fourth, the eighth season of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color debuts on September twenty fourth, nineteen sixty one on NBC. What is noteworthy about this episode? And a bonus point is available. I think I need to go with multiple choice. Okay, is it A, the only time Walt's daughters, Diane and Sharon, appear to co-host with their father? B, it is the first episode of the series to be broadcast in full color? C, it is the first and only time Walt's brother Roy appears on the television show? Or D, Walt unveils the studio's first plans for the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. Well, it is the wonderful world of color after all, so I think I'd have to go with B. It was the first episode completely in color. You are correct. As Walt said, we are in full color. <laughs> so, And it, it is hosted by Walt, of course, and the episode includes an adventure in color and one of my favorite shorts, Donald in Mathematic Land. Uh, the episode is sponsored by RCA, who runs commercials during the show promoting their new RCA color television. Very good. Now we have, uh, there is a bonus question available. A new character is introduced in this episode. Who is it? Hmm. Uh, 1961. Uh, I think I might have to say uh, Pongo because that's the year 101 Dalmatians was released. No, that's true. But actually, it's Professor Ludwig von Drake. And he's voiced oh, by oh, Paul yes. Fries. Yeah. So. Yes, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Okay, so two to one. Alexander, you're ahead right now. Craig, over to you. We have another television question. The, I guess that makes sense, because traditionally, September was the month all the new series would start or the continuing ones resumed. The also, ABC... Sorry, mm -hmm. it is two to two. Oh, two to two. Oh, you had two. That's right. Thank you. So... Okay, the ABC Television Network airs the last episode of a popular Disney television series on September 25th, 1959. Which series is it? I will go multiple choice. Okay, is it A, Zorro, B, The Nine Lives of El Fago Baca, C, The Davy Crockett Series, or D, The Mickey Mouse Club? I'm going to go with... Mm, I think I'm going to go with Zorro. 
Okay. That is incorrect. Okay, so Alexander, over to you. Which Disney television series ended on September 25th, 1959? Was it The Nine Lies of El Fago Baca, Davy Crockett, or The Mickey Mouse Club? Well, Davy Crockett, I I always knew him to be... Uh, he first aired shortly before Disneyland opened, and he became an icon throughout the 50s. I never heard of him in any at any time in the 60s, really. So I think I, I'd have to go with C, Davy Crockett. That that's a very good guess, but unfortunately, it's the Mickey Mouse Club. This is all part of a dispute that Walt Disney had with ABC, and 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 actually, all the ABC series um, Walt ended. Huh. So anyway, NBC. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. See how this all relates. Okay. All right. Okay, so uh, I think, Alexander, it's your turn now for September 26th. On September 26, 1953, Walt Disney phones an artist to ask about the possibility of them drawing some concept sketches of a new theme park. Who is the artist Walt phoned? I believe you've talked about this before, but uh, I, I have to go with multiple choice again. Okay. So A, John Hench, B, Herb Ryman, C, Harper Goff, or D, Mark Davis? Hmm. Uh, uh, what was B again? Herb Ryman. Yes, that, that name rings a bell to me, so I think I'd have to go with B, Herb Ryman. And you are correct. That is the correct bell. It is Herb Ryman. He calls Herb Ryman at his home Saturday morning, asking him to draw some overall concept, concept sketches of the new theme park Walt has been talking about for a long time. So, because Walt's brother Roy is to leave for New York on Monday to meet with possible investors. Although Ryman is not a Disney employee at this time, he agrees to meet Walt at the studio. And when he arrives at the Disney lot, Walt is anxiously waiting out front. Uh, This is often referred to as the lost weekend. And pretty much they lived on tuna fish sandwiches and coffee as as, um, Walt stood over the shoulder of Herb Ryman and described Disneyland in detail to him. So, right, I okay. remember that story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Okay, well, it is now four to two with Alexander in the lead. Craig, over to you. This permanently closed at the end of the operating day on September 27th, 2008. There is a bonus point available. Um, I will go with multiple choice. Okay. Is it A, the live Pocahontas and her forest friend show at Disney's Animal Kingdom? B, the Wonders of Life Pavilion at Epcot? C, the Pleasure Island nightclubs at Walt Disney World, or D, the Mickey Mouse Review at Tokyo Disneyland? I believe I know the answer to this. 
And that is Pocahontas. Okay. That is correct. Okay. Very good. Yep, that was it. Closes after 10 years. Bonus question. There's another correct answer. Which one is it? Is it the Wonders of Life Pavilion at Epcot, the Pleasure Island nightclubs at Walt Disney World, or the Mickey Mouse Review at Tokyo Disneyland? I believe, if I remember correctly, um, I think... I want to say that... I'm sorry, I'm trying to go through the numbers in my head. So, I... The only one that I know... I, I thought it closed at a different... I thought it closed earlier in the year. Um, I turned 21 in in uh, 2008. And uh, to date myself there a little bit. But I thought it closed in like February... Um, because I thought I missed going to Pleasure Island, not because we didn't take a trip, but because I wasn't, I wasn't legal when, when it was closing. But, um, what were the other two again? The Wonders of Life Pavilion and the Mickey Mouse Review at Tokyo Disneyland. Um, yeah, see, in my head it's between Pleasure Island and Mickey Mouse Review, and... I mean, maybe I was wrong, but I, I'm going to go with... I'll, I'll go with Pleasure Island. You are correct. They close permanently at the end of this evening. Guests begin lining up around 10 a.m. to get to the popular Adventurers Club. At midnight, New Year's Eve is celebrated one last time, complete with fireworks. So very good. It was a guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All righty. I know I never got to see the Adventures Club. When we were supposed to go, um, Carol wasn't feeling well, so we went back to the resort. And I figured, oh, well, we'll just go next time. Carol had been to it before. She wasn't impressed with it. And um, and then it was it was announced not four weeks later it was closing. Yeah. That they were all closing. And I thought, I can't believe it. And yeah, so they were closed before our next trip. Yeah, and now that I'm thinking about it more, I think the issue was I did I took a vacation before I was 21, and then when we came in 2008, um, I think that was the year we came in October and did mm-hmm. did the Halloween party. So uh, okay. technically, then I would have missed it before <laughs> since it was my first one. But I'm rambling. Go on. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So, okay, um, Alexandra, over to you. We're back with um, Herb Ryman and Walt Disney again. Um, the, uh, they continue to sketch out Walt's ideas for a family theme park on September 28, 1953. Meanwhile, in New York, Walt's brother Roy meets with several television networks to seek financing for Disneyland. Which network agrees to finance the park? Oh, well, I, based on the previous questions, I believe that would be ABC. 
That is correct. Okay, that's right. The American Broadcasting Company, ABC. Uh, CBS executives are not interested. NBC's parent company, RCA, stalls in making a commitment. But ABC's Leonard Goldenson eagerly agrees to participate because they were the smallest of the major networks. Um, But the final agreement won't be signed until April 1954. And it includes a $500,000 investment from ABC and a guarantee for a $4.5 million line of credit in return for a 35% interest in Disneyland and a weekly one-hour TV program with Disney films and production for television. So, very good. Okay, seven to five. And we are now into our general question, and, and Alexander's in the lead. Craig, you could pull this out, though. Okay. Um, you know, where did the idea for figment in Journey into Imagination come from? I will go with a multiple choice. Okay. A, the 1997 film Pete's Dragon. B, a recurring nightmare of Tony Baxter's. C, an episode of the television show Magnum P.I.? Or D, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland? Um, my gosh, I, gen- I genuinely don't know the answer to this. The only one that I think I've heard as a joke before was the Tony Baxter's Nightmare one. And mm-hmm. that's so that's the only thing I, I think I've even heard thrown out there before. So I'll go with that. Okay, that is incorrect. So, so, so over to you, Alexander. Uh, where did the idea for Figment and Journey to Imagination come from? Was it from the 1997 film Pete's Dragon, an episode of the television show Magnum P.I., or Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland? I believe it was. Um, it was inspired by. Uh, an episode of the television series Magnum P.I. You are absolutely correct. It is. Oh. So, yeah, that not that Tony Baxter was watching the Tom Selleck television show Magnum P.I. when he came up with the concept. When the show's title character referred to a figment of imagination as a real object by saying, a figment does not eat grass. Huh. <laughs> isn't that great? Yeah, I can't so. believe I've never heard that before. I even went to the D23 panel about imagination. Yeah, yeah. And that story's not on the Figment Wikipedia page either. So, <laughs> so Alexander, congratulations. You, congrats. You're two out of three here. Um, not, not many people can say that. So... Um, well done. You have a very good uh, knowledge of Disney history. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. And, and of course, we always like to, to send our, our, our contestants away with, with something to remember us by. So, of course, uh, we, we'd like you to accept a, a, a one-month supply of Hostess Chocodiles. Well, uh, are they what they sound like, chocolate uh, crocodiles? <laughs> these were uh, these are chocolate covered Twinkies, and they were they were only produced on the West Coast. So, um, 
Anyway, I think now they, they do make them. I think when Hostess reopened under new ownership, but now they they call them, I think they call them Chocodile Twinkies. But I don't know if they're available anywhere else but um, the West Coast. So, interesting. Well, uh, yeah. Well, um, well, thank you very much. It's, uh... <laughs> well, we we were delighted to have you. You know, the young, the youngest guest on our show, and look at that, you um came out ahead. So, congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, I uh, I had a lot of fun uh, answering these uh, trivial questions of Disney <laughs> history. N- nothing's trivial about Disney. <laughs> Anyway, well, I mispronounced words. No, no, well, I'm just kidding with you. So, anyway, thank you so much, and please thank your family for um, allowing allowing you to take time out to be on the show. And I look forward to seeing you the next time we're all at um, Walt Disney World together. Well, you know that that's a lot to go through, and and. I don't know, Craig, do you, what do you think? Are we off to a, a strong night of our uh, our long evening of, uh, of our big film marathon here? I, I think so, honestly. Um, the, the big question in my mind now is, are we going to get the theatrical edition of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, or are we going to get the extended cut? Because oh, it's, yeah. that's, that could really be a make or break on the night. Um, since there technically isn't an HD version out there of the the extended cut. So mm-hmm. I, I'm leaning towards thinking it'll be the theatrical one. Uh, but you know what? It's Regardless, I, I, that's a great movie. Uh, for the first half of the night, you got two great shorts in there. Flight mm-hmm. of the Navigator. I, I think... I think it's definitely a strong start. It's it's yeah. going to go downhill quickly after, <laughs> but we'll get there yeah. next week. Of course, we will. You're right. We will get there next week. Um, yeah, but you know, for between bedknobs and broomsticks and a little whirlwind, it's two hours and ten minutes. So, uh, so it, I, so it, it'll be interesting to see what they put in there. Yeah. So it's not. I don't. It's not going to be. It's not going to be the big long yeah, one. That's a bummer. So, yeah. So, anyway, but yeah, join us next time where we will complete our tour, our walk through the remaining of the films on Turner Classic Movies uh, Treasures in the Disney Vault for October 2018. Uh, for references, I used the book, The Disney Films by Leonard Malton. I also referred to the following websites the D23, the original fan club the Disney Films, uh, the Disney Wiki, and the Internet Movie Database. And we will have links to all of these in our show notes. So we look forward to having you back next week uh, for uh, as we continue our reviews of these films. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.